I think uh, so, so today Professor is going to be talking about the two two sources of credit. Uh, credit arising out of savings and credit arising out of consumption um, from the mere fact that we all exist as human beings. So, over to Professor. Thank you. Um, I start with a longish introduction before I come to the point. First of all, when I uh, drew up this course, it's already nine years, more than nine years ago, I dedicated this particular chapter to Ludwig von Mises, whom, as I already mentioned, I consider the greatest economist of the 20th century. And I start with this quotation. You have it in front of you, but I read it because I think it's important and I like it and it's very much to the point, explaining what is happening in the world, putting it into context, which would embrace several centuries, not just decades. This is what Mises said. The struggle against gold, which is one of the main concerns of all contemporary governments, must not be looked upon as an isolated phenomenon. It is, it is but one item in the gigantic process of destruction which is the mark of our time. People fight the gold standard because they want to substitute national autarky for free trade, war for peace, and totalitarian government on omnipotence for liberty. I think this is something you might want to read several times and just try to understand it, penetrate what this uh, thought means. Now, 1971 was the watershed year, and Mises died, uh, I think, two years later. And 1971 was the year, a milestone in the history of money and credit, because previously in the world, at least in the most developed countries, money and hence credit was tied to a positive value the value of a well-defined quantity and quality of good happened to be gold, but that's not the point. It was positive value as opposed to negative value, which is, for example, the value of debt. So this tie to positive values was cut in 1971, and thereafter, in the entire world, value was defined in terms of negative quantities, the value of debt, or debt instruments. This innovation, if we can abuse the word innovation that way, had two immediate consequences, both of which are pointedly ignored in the scholarly literature. The first is that the option to reduce the total debt in the world in the course of normal payments has been lost. Total indebtedness 
in the world could only be reduced to either default or currency depreciation. Now before, when positive values were allowed, there was such a thing as an ultimate extinguisher of debt. The, mon the um, monetary metal, monetary unit. And when you paid off a debt, surrendering, in that case, gold, then that debt was extinguished, period. That's not possible today to do because if you repay a debt with, say, Federal Reserve notes, then the debt is only shifted from you to the Federal Reserve, or ultimately to the, U to the U.S. Treasury, which is the guarantor of all Federal Reserve credit. So we pretend that we get out of that, but this is only make-believe, because in fact the debt is increasing. And moreover, it has to increase at least at the rate of the same rate as the rate of interest. <coughs> because when interest is being paid uh, to service the debt, this is in addition to the amount of that which already exists. So if you did not create that much extra money to cover this payment of interest and think globally now, all over the world, then there would be a shortage of money. So going back to uh, yesterday's uh, horse action, Remember Milton Friedman said that all it takes is a clever horse, or an obedient horse, which goes around and around, thrashing the grain. Just imagine that poor horsey, what will he do when interest rate goes to 16%? I mean, it's easy for Friedman to say that the Fed only has to get hold of a clever horse and make it go around. But what if interest goes to 16% as it did in 1980? And it could happen again, and a lot of people are predicting that it will. Right, you know, within, within maybe months. Well, I'm not one of them, but that's beside the point. Point is that it could, as it did in the past, then you have to churn out, or the poor horse, he will have to go that much faster to create the extra money to keep the system together, because without it, it will fall apart. Now, that was one. That the world has no possibility to reduce total debt, and as a consequence, that, that total that can only grow, and grow it will with an accelerating speed, because there is no more limit. There is no uh, mechanism which would slow down that explosive increase. So that's the explanation of the debt tower and the indebtedness is just growing with acceleration. The second point, the consequence of this loss that the world has no longer in command because the total that can only grow is that the governments have lost their option to balance the budget. 
So all this talk about balancing the budget and reducing government debt is for the birds. There is no uh, real basis justifying such idle talk. All this is make-believe, pretense that the government can do it. The government cannot because the unit of value is a negative one and the governments lost that opportunity to reduce deficit, reduce that. I'm going to ask Keith uh, in a few minutes, I'm just saying that uh, so that you will be prepared. I would like you to say a few words about the Triffin dilemma, which you showed me yesterday, okay? Because this is very relevant to what we are discussing here. So as a result of these changes, very fundamental changes, unique in history, it's never happened before that a negative value was adopted and embraced and the monetary system uh, was built on it. The, uh, the monetary system previously was patterned on the model of an anchor. In fact, gold was sometimes called the anchor. They considered the gold anchor could even be an emblem for the uh, for the uh, gold standard. Just an anchor, <coughs> naval anchor. Ships have anchors, you see, made of gold. Now this is going to keep the system safe, and it cannot get adrift. Um, and people aboard the ship will lose control because in any case there is a golden anchor which would, uh, even in very stormy weather, it could be dropped and once it is dropped, then you are safe as <laughs> much as it's humanly possible in, in even stormy weather. Now, this has changed, no more anchor. So the monetary system is more like a weather vane. You know those things on chimney tops which uh, turn uh, with the wind and it shows you the direction of the wind. That's what the monetary system is. It uh, is completely destabilized of the economy as a consequence and uh, no more possibility of control. Uh, the best you can hope is that you have a weather wind which gives you some clues that what is coming. So as the tide of unpaid and unpayable debt grows, so ebbs the value of money. And that's a tendency. There are fluctuations. And that's only to fool simpletons. If you have brain to think with, then you won't be fooled that sometimes the dollar index goes up and the gold price goes down. Because <laughs> the tendency is crystal clear. That the volume of unpaid and unpayable debt it's growing, and the value of money is falling. Now, this year is the 40th anniversary of the famous year 1971, when the brave new world of reckless debt breeding has started. Now, two score of years is not a long time in historical terms. But it might be sufficiently long to warrant an examination of this deliberate policy of heaping more debt upon unpaid and unpayable debts. Has the policy of un bridled 
credit expansion blindly embraced by the governments of the world some 40 years ago serve the people well? Or do the negative results of this latest experimentation with the regime of irredeemable currency warrant a more careful examination of the principles involved than it had been provided? The question is not raised and the anniversary is being ignored. There is a lot of confusion surrounding this issue. Officially, the topic is off limits to scholarship and research. Anyone who dares to question the legitimacy and wisdom of the world's present monetary arrangements or challenge the doctrine that the regime of irredeemable currency represents progress over obsolete metallic monetary regimes is browbeaten or subjected to ostracism and contempt and even ridiculed by the powers that be. Professional standing is denied to anybody who questions this. And it is reserved for those who pay lip service to the dogma that emancipation from a metallic monetary standard was a progressive, even a necessary historical development. One author whose work may help us to understand this change is Ludwig von Mises. He published his first important book in German in 1912 at the age of 31. The English translation came more than 20 years later and the American edition in 1952. The English uh, title is uh, Monetary, uh, uh, The Theory of Money and Credit. This is a great book. I, uh, I am the f first to admit it, but there are things in it which I, uh, after long uh, thinking and study and even self-examination question. And I, I think Mises uh, wouldn't want me to act otherwise if he lived, because he, will, he never thought of himself as God or a cult leader or something like that, which he has in fact become, because uh, every time I publish something which is uh, suggesting that this or that uh, dictum of Mises stands to be corrected or reviewed, then I'm being debunked and even abused. They call me names because apparently in the view of those people who run the Mises cult, it's sacrilege to question anything what the prophet has said. I don't think Mises would, if he lived, he would agree to that, but that's uh, another question. Now, I would like to point out that two historical, <coughs> very momentous things happened between 1971 and today, which I consider missed opportunities. 
if the world leaders would have listened to Mises, they would have grabbed the one or the other opportunity to rectify this present situation, which is a disastrous uh, rush into uh, against a brick wall or an iceberg or whatever uh, analogy you would like to use. The first of these two historical opportunities was the collapse of the Soviet Union and its evil empire. It, this is a fact, not very well known, but I'm telling you about it because I was in Washington serving in a congressional office, uh, the congressional office of uh, Congressman William Donemeyer of California. And uh, so this thing happened in 1989. A high power delegation from the United States went to the Soviet Union. There were Treasury officials, Federal Reserve officials, and a lot of advisors. A number of delegates, members of this delegation could have been the 50, around 50. And the leader, if I remember correctly, was Alan Greenspan. Well, I'm sure he was, but what I'm not sure that he was already the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board or not, but that's not important. And the message which the delegation carried to Moscow, to the Soviet leaders, well, Gorbachev at that time, and was that the Soviet Union is facing an immediate economic collapse, but there is a way to save it, save the Soviet system, save the legacy, legacy of Lenin. <laughs> Guess what this way was, they, according to the delegation of this. They said that the Soviet Union could avail itself to credit, unlimited credit, if they started issuing gold bonds. Just imagine, this delegation carried the message to Moscow. Save the Soviet Union. You are in mortal danger of being wiped off the face of the world. But there is a way. Play the gold card. This, the hypocrisy of this is incredible. At the 11th hour, the Soviet Union could be saved, they suggested. Just play the gold card. The Soviet Union would have excellent credit rating if it made its bonds gold bonded. Because the world does not have gold bonds, and the world is eager to get them. So this is your opportunity to save communism, to save uh, the dream of mankind, the communist paradise. <laughs> the advice came too late. Well, I don't think they would have acted on it, but even, I guess, if the Soviets had acted on the advice, it would have come too late, because within months, so to speak, the system started unraveling, the Soviet system. It was already in, in a downward spiral, just as predicted by the delegation. And this episode is interesting for two reasons. First, the same advice was not given to the new leadership of Russia after communism collapsed. When communism collapsed, 
the advice was withdrawn and a new advice was given, namely, let's integrate Russia into the globalization plan of the world. Take over. We are one step closer to world government. So, saving Soviet communism from self-destruction was worth playing the gold card, but saving Russia from the consequences of the continuing downwards economic spiral is quite another matter. Russia is now target for globalization. There's no place for gold bond financing in the globalized world. But there is a second lesson from this, from this uh, hypocrisy of uh, the uh, Western world giving this advice to the collapsing communist system. There is no place for gold bond financing in the globalized world, and in particular, there is no place for gold bonds in the United States. The fact that the United States in a way faces the same problem with a little bit of phase delay is ignored. The United States was also drowning, just like the Soviet Union. I'm not suggesting that they are comparable cases, but it just so happens that the gold bond idea would help the United States as well. But neither Alan Greenspan nor his uh, member uh, delegates uh, would give that advice to the U.S. government that the that spiral could be stopped and the bleeding could be stopped because that's what's happening that the uh, economy of the United States going down it's a leaking ship and something should be done plug the holes and gold bond it's time to play the gold card in the United States also but I don't know if they will but I doubt it it doesn't look like but who knows, perhaps there are contingency plans in the Treasury and the Federal Reserve to that effect, but I, I doubt it very much. Now, that was the first missed opportunity, collapse of the Soviet Union, which was inevitable, we can say that, and if you read Mises, nobody can present the case more convincingly than he did. I mean, after all, in, nine, in the 1920s he wrote the book on socialism, which um, made it very clear that uh, the, uh, in the Soviet Union any other similar government, uh, they lose the uh, power of calculating economic processes. Because if you wipe out, if you remove the profit, it's a, one of the most important indicators. Uh, if you are envious, sure, you condemn profit, but that's very short-sighted because society does need profits without it, no rational allocation of resources is possible, so you are going to build a very wasteful uh, economic machine which eventually will self-destruct, and that's exactly what happened. So, now the second uh, missed opportunity was the introduction of the Euro in, uh, at the turn of the century or turn of the millennium. Uh, it should have been an occasion for initiating a reform of the international monetary system by 
that time it was clear that the dollar system is not going to survive. So the Europeans who had longer tradition and they, the Europeans by instinct so to speak were more prone to respect tradition or the old sages in the United States you say ah that was yesterday today we know so much better but in Europe well you are a little more careful normally anyhow the opportunity was missed because the euro was created on the dollar pattern in other words greed took precedence over wisdom because the Europeans were envious that the Americans had this dream machine of 100% seniorage. Now, under kings and kaisers and emperors and so on in all history, 100% seniorage was impossible. They had seniors, sure. The, you took your gold to the uh, king's mint and they struck the gold coins and gave you back the gold coin, but it was 10% less gold or 15% or 20% depending on how much the king could squeeze out of the population. But 100% seniors? No, that was not possible. They didn't even think it would ever be possible. Yet, right there, the Federal Reserve notes are the result of a new type of mint, the printing press, and zero seniorage, because it cost the government pennies to produce the paper and ink and the machinery to print it, and then the government can turn around with a little bit of prestidigitation, which is this check-kiting business between the Fed and the Treasury, and lo and behold, you can buy what you want. Zero percent cost, or nearly zero percent cost, and hundred percent seniorage. So the Europeans got the John Dice. We should do the same thing. And they did. The Euro is just a carbon copy of the incredible money-making machine on the Potomac in Washington. So shame, shame on the Europeans. I'm, I'm a European, both by culture and I was born here, educated. And emotionally, I feel more comfortable in Europe than I would in America. But to live down that shame will take a long, long time. They had this opportunity, golden opportunity, to do something, to do different. And the disaster was already visible, which was coming. I mean, even in this, what you hold in your hands, in this, you will find that some of my predictions of about 10 years ago have uh, come <coughs> So it was visible. And all they could do is create a carbon copy of, of the uh, dollar system. So uh, these two opportunities are missed, and we are still running into the disaster. We are riding a train downhill on a downsloping hill.
and no brakes on the train. So we have to be prepared for disaster. I'm building on the monetary theorist Ludwig von Mises, but as I pointed out, I, the, the, I do not agree with him on every point, and I feel that it's my duty to point out. Uh, I'm very careful. I, I think it over and over and over again, and I criticize only when I think that there is an absolute necessity. So, <coughs> I, my disagreement with Mises, the first one I already mentioned, quantity theory of money. Mises says that he's committed to the quantity theory of money, but he talks about a greatly improved version of the quantity theory of money. And this is true. In that book I referred to, Theory of Money and Credit, he restates the quantity of theory of money much more carefully than others before him did. But basically what this improvement is, is he takes the lead, leads and lags into account. Now, increasing the quantity of money does not is not immediately followed by increasing prices. There is, this is a lead and, and this is a lag. The increasing prices are lagged. It takes who knows how long. And in certain cases, you can study and even predict how long it will take. But that's not, not my basic disagreement, uh, even though I think it's a, positive, a step in the right direction, what Mises did, but this is not my basic disagreement with the quantity theory. And I will have more opportunity later in the course to explain what my basic disagreement is. It is lacking a moral direction. And perhaps the best way to look at it is talk a little bit about philosophy, <laughs> in particular one branch of philosophy, modern branch, very scientific. It's called positivism. Positivism as a philosophical school underlying the scientific culture of our age. It fanatically denies the teleological nature of economics. Now we used this word already yesterday, and I repeat it, that there are two great scientific principles one is the principle of causality, and there is the principle of teleology. A lot of people confuse it with theology, but there's nothing. And, and therefore, uh, especially atheists who dismiss this, that this is just theology, but it's not. Because in the physical world, you have cause and effect. And in the world of human action, in the world of economics, you have teleology, which is, so here, cause and effect. And in teleology, you have means and ends. And that's very important. Here, you have lifeless objects. Objects without free will. Molecules, atoms, subatomic particles, and so on. Endless. And they 
are subject to the law of causal things. Well, for those who know a little bit more about physics than the average, uh, I say that I am aware that there is such a thing as quantum mechanics, in which the principle of causality is sometimes dismissed, or at least the question mark is put there. This is a deterministic view of the world, whereas quantum mechanics gives you an alternative, which is the probabilistic view. But I'm not going to enter this discussion, because neither view, classical mechanics or quantum mechanics, would question that particles have no free will. So let's just leave this philosophical question out of the discussion. But there is just no question about the fact that the you cannot subdivide the elementary particles in economics the same way as you do in physics. First, the molecules thought to be the smallest, and then they discover that no, you can subdivide more than atom, and, but that's the absolute end, because the word itself, atom, suggests that no more subdivision. And lo and behold, there was, because the atom, the nucleus, and the electrons around it, and even the nucleus can be subdivided, protons, neutrons. But that was the end now, and that it wasn't, because then they discovered the quarks and all kinds of other things. So that's the physical. Now, in economics, you can talk about groups and so on and bring it down to family. But even that can be subdivided because there's the father, there's the mother, children, and so on. So we come down to an individual, the acting man in Mises' world, or word, or uh, Menger, Karl Menger uses the word the economizing individual. You see, the question is, can you subdivide him? Can you cut him into two halves, right and left, and say, now, the right does this, the left does that? No, you can't do that. Now, free will. Who does the economizing individual have free will? Well, the word economizing suggests that he does. And the human action, the human acts, the action suggests that he does. He does have free will. He is presented with the facts and he can make choices. And as he, or she for that matter, makes the choices, that's acting, that's exercising free will. Now I know that the vast majority of people may be too dull or too ignorant to use this faculty of free will in a constructive way. I know this very well. But we have to look at the leaders of society, those people who see further than the great average the bulk of the population And uh, therefore, it's not possible to understand economics or history or a lot of other subjects apart from physics or chemistry uh, if you do not take free will into account. Now, for a positivist, this is wrong. They don't recognize teleology. They say, well, if you take a group of people, then it becomes predictable. 
It becomes very much like physics. There is the uh, 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 statistical uh, theory of of uh, heat. You know, looking at molecules, making these uh, uh, wave-like motions, and that way you explain heat. The same way in the human society, take a group of people, and then the molecules, human individuals, are just having random movements, but out of this random picture, the rule will come up. This is, you know, really so childish, but that's a very serious branch of philosophy, the positivists say this. And of course, that's how macroeconomics was born, because uh, using the positivist approach, they just started talking about the working class, the exploiter's class, or the peasant's class, and assume that these newly created units act as if they were individuals, but subject to the laws of physics. You know? So this is how the bulk of present-day economics is built up on positivist principles and uh, uh, working with units of, uh, there's a word, technical word, uh, aggregates. Aggregates is the technical word. Uh, it could not, doesn't have to be people, but aggregate uh, income, aggregate. Uh, money supplies and other such aggregate and so on. So this is a basic mistake in in our view. And of course Mises is the great source of this wisdom because he uh, delivered a devastating criticism of positivism. I even give you a little story uh, which is a true story but uh, of course, the Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama is not advertising that, but I know it's true. Uh, Mises had a brother, Richard. Uh, Richard Mises was a physicist and mathematician, and uh, uh, he was working in statistics and so on. And, uh, very famous in his own right, uh, but not nearly as famous as the brother Ludwig. And uh, he died, he was the younger brother, and he died earlier. And uh, at a meeting, somebody went to Ludwig from Mises and offered his condolences on, on the death of his younger brother. And then Ludwig from Mr. said he was a positivist. <laughs> <laughs> now here's a beautiful quotation which I really offer to you and uh, I take pride that I myself translated that <laughs> from German to English. But I'm sure somebody could do a better job, but I, I thought this was nice. In uh, the Faust, the famous philosophical drama, which is two parts, and it's usually only the first part which they uh, produce in theaters, because the second part is longer and more abstract and more philosophical, and it. Uh, no, it doesn't lend itself so easily, so it will take, if ever, a genius uh, producer who would make a film or, uh, or uh, uh, put it on the stage. And in part two, there is a very famous 
act, a scene, is called the paper money scene. Uh, well, there's the emperor and uh, the uh, treasurer comes to report to him that the treasure is empty and there's no money to pay the troops and uh, the imperial household, etc., etc. And of course, the the uh, bad guy in the story is Mephistopheles, uh, the, the devil. In human form, he is a kind of advisor to the imperial court. And the emperor turns to him and says, well, now, can you say something smart, something clever, how to find uh, our way out of the trouble? And he says, of course I can. It's very simple. And then the emperor presses him to present his plan. And he says, basically, it's well worth reading. Reading several times. But I have to simplify it because we have all kinds of time pressures on us. So what he does is he says, basically, that uh, the law and tradition gives the emperor the right to all what is underground and yet undiscovered. So in particular, all the gold ore, silver ore, and other treasure which is still unmined, deep down the ground, is the property of the emperor. So it's very simple. You just mortgage the unmined gold and unmined silver and other treasure in the ground and the mortgage certificates you put into circulation as simple as that. And the emperor says, oh, well, this cannot be done. Who will take those mortgage certificates? So, leave it to me. I'll just suggest you follow what I said. So, hardly anybody believes him, Mephistopheles, but uh, there's not much choice. So, they go ahead with this. And uh, then, in another scene, uh, you have now the emperor sitting there and then the uh, messengers come and say what's happening and, and uh, the people got ecstatic in, you know, uh, the economy which was dismal now it's all perked up and so on and then uh, just three lines here we printed at once the notes, large and small. Tens, twenties, fifties, hundreds and all. You can't imagine how it pleased the people, short and tall. But, but really, uh, to do justice to this, you have to read the whole thing. And I would uh, urge you to do that. Now, to the positivist mind, it's cantankerous, hair-splitting, to drag educational institutions and uh, 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 widows and orphans who depend on the integrity of the currency for, the economic, for their economic survival into the debate. It's not the task not my task to enter into a moral argument. And as far as possible, one should keep value, the value system out of science. But there's no need to bring in moral arguments because all you have to do is to establish the fact that Credit abuse, which is like the paper money 
creation by this emperor on the one hand and the corruption and the credit abuse on the one hand and the consequences are important because the feedback mechanism between the two is corrupted. So no value judgment here. It's just that if you corrupt the currency, then the feedback mechanism which would keep the system in balance breaks down. So I just read this because I think I, uh, I couldn't do better than that. We only need to establish the fact that Credit abuse corrupts the feedback mechanism without which no adjustment is possible. That it undermines and ultimately destroys the free and voluntary cooperation of individuals under the system of division of labor. That it leads to capital consumption, which is hard to detect, but which nevertheless is a prescription for the wholesale pauperization of society. So this is the uh, <laughs> introduction which took us I just say a few more words and then we can have the uh, uh, break and I'm afraid after the break I have to cut short the discussion uh, because I want to <laughs> the main topic. <laughs> so there are two sources of credit, and one is the easily seen, and the other is the hard to see source. see that if you uh, put a piece of cake or a piece of bread away, you can eat it and would like to eat it today, but you know that tomorrow I may not get another piece, then you have saved. So you are secure for another day. But of course this can be done on a larger scale, time scale. And therefore, the saving is really necessary. And also, the other usual example is that if there is a fishing village and so many people are assigned to do the actual fishing and go out in boats and have the nets and catch the fish. But if you don't repair, you don't keep your net in good repair, then sooner or later <laughs> you won't be able to catch the fish. So they will have to assign some people to uh, the work of repairing the nets. And that's a form of saving because those people who repair the nets are not catching fish. But they still have to eat and other needs to be taken care of. So. Under division of labor, there is this saving, which is so obvious that if you think long term, you just have to do it. And if you impair 
or anybody impairs uh, the saving part, then <coughs> sooner or later you will have trouble, shortages, etc. Well, that's easy. But even if I just say that much, that another source of credit is that arising out of consumption, then you say, well, that sounds like contradiction. Consumption is everything but saving. But you see, that's just because of the inertia in thinking. That when we say credit, we immediately think of savings. So anything different from that, especially consumption, cannot lead to credit. Well, that's a basic mistake. And I, I think I'm almost in minority of one who says that without this, the whole theory of interest is not uh, a realistic theory. Without acknowledging consumption as a sort of source of saving. Now to convince you that this is so, I take an example from geography, which may have. Just think of a river, a sizable river, which is emptying into the ocean. And think of this as the volume of goods being produced, but they have to go through various steps uh, from semi-finished products, more and more highly finished, and ultimately they're ready to consume goods, you see. And consumption is the ocean itself, where the good disappears as a marketable good after you've eaten the bread. It's no longer marketable. So there it is, this river. You see. Now, if you take a bucket full of water upstream, you don't really know that this will end up. In fact, you know that it won't end up in the ocean because you have taken it and used it for irrigation or drinking or taking a bath or what have you. So that's the same of any other bucket full of water if you take it upstream. But the closer you get to the ocean in the course of this river flowing, the probability of the good ending up in consumption as planned is going to increase. It's going to increase. And as a matter of fact, already close enough to the ocean, but still upstream, the salinity of water is going to increase. Now, salinity is a measure of how much salt. You see, there is the dynamic and so on. So, uh, uh, fresh water upstream, but after a point, which could almost be pinpointed with precision, the salinity starts to increase. And, and that example I use as the measure that from here on it's almost 100% sure that the good, which is a bucket full of water when the salinity is already present, is going to be consumed. It's going to be sold. Because the good is in high demand, it's just a matter of time, 91 days, <laughs> to be precise, that, uh, you know, the uh, good will, be cons uh, will reach the market and will be bought uh, by the ultimate consumer and will be consumed. So you see, uh, this fact 
that there is a quantum jump in the probability of the bucket full of water reaching the ocean there's a quantum jump in this probability. This fact is the source of credit. And that is exactly the reason why the real bills doctrine is applicable. Because when this point is reached, then it's very safe to issue credit, these bills of exchange against the maturing good. It's still moving, it's still not yet on the market, but the probability makes it almost a foregone conclusion. The risk is disappearing. It's disappear there is a high risk in upstream further up because all kinds of things happen. There is a saying, uh, there's lots of slips between, uh, the, there's lots of slip between cup and lip. You take a cup of tea and you take it for certain that you will be able to drink it, but something can happen. You can drop the cup, somebody could take it from you, all kinds of things. But the closer you are to your lips, the more certain it is that you can have your drink of tea. You see? There is a point when nobody will question that, okay, you got it now, you can take the drink. But as long as the distance is great enough, there are many a slip between cup and lip. So we are talking about the case when this slip is disappearing, the risk is disappearing. So I will continue after the break uh, because I think this is important and uh, we'll see how many questions there are. If there are enough questions, I'll come back to the questions this afternoon. Okay, great. Thanks very much, Professor. Thank you.